0: In Romans 3.1, Paul posed the question of whether the Jew has any advantage over the Gentile or whether circumcision has any value at all. And the reason that Paul felt it was necessary to address this question is because in the second half of Romans chapter 2, he was dedicated to destroying the Jewish presumption to being in a special saving covenant relationship with God solely because God had given to them the law of Moses and the sign of circumcision. But, argues Paul, having the law means nothing if you don't keep the law and being circumcised in the flesh is meaningless without the circumcision of the heart. Paul goes so far as to say that if a Jew doesn't keep the law, by which he means the obedience of faith in Christ, then he's not really a Jew. 2.25 But if a Gentile keeps the law, by which he means comes to the obedience of faith in Christ, then that uncircumcised Gentile is truly a Jew. Verses 26 and 27. Why? Verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so when Paul asks in chapter 3 and verse 1, then what advantage has the Jew, or what value is circumcision, we expect him to say, none whatsoever. There is no value. There is no advantage. But that's not the way that he responds. Rather, he says, verse 2, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, the word of God, the revelation of God's character and nature and plan written down in the pages of Scripture. The Jews were granted the inestimable privilege of having access to the word of God and thereby access through faith to the eternal covenant of grace and the salvation provided therein. So in one sense, in the sense of having access to the Word of God, having an access that the Gentile nations by and large did not have until the New Covenant era, the Jews were at a tremendous advantage over the Gentiles. Just as our children, who are raised on the Word of God within this church, are at a tremendous advantage over unchurched children who are not taught the word. Yet this advantage does not save our children automatically. Rather, it must be met with faith and the internal operation of the Holy Spirit. So there is another sense in which the Jews have no advantage over Gentiles who do not have the oracles of God because the Jews and the Gentiles alike are by nature under the power of sin. They are rebels against God. They are transgressors of the knowledge of God which they all possess, whether through creation and conscience, the Gentiles, or through the oracles of God, the Jews. They're all guilty. This is going to be Paul's point in today's passage, which returns after that that brief parenthesis in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 3 to what has been the main theme from chapter 118 all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. Namely, that all men everywhere, without exception, are sinners under the wrath of God and are destined for destruction because... All have suppressed the truth of God which they know and have exchanged it for the lie of idolatry, self-worship, and self-exaltation. These verses that we're, we come to this morning are the devastating summation of Paul's indictment of the entire human race. By the time we get to verse 9, the charges have been read, the arguments have been have been made, the evidence has been brought forth, and there is no defense that can be made. There is no appeal. The verdict which will come thundering down from the bench at the end of this text is guilty. And at that moment, just when we expect the sentence of death to be read and executed in wrath, there comes another word from the bench a word of grace, a word of acquittal, a gospel. Yet we are not prepared to hear and to respond to this gospel until we have heard and submitted to the verdict set forth in these first three chapters. As we unpack Paul's summation this morning, his closing argument, let me challenge you to ask the Lord to reveal to your mind and your heart the truth of these charges, pray that you would be thoroughly convinced that what Paul says is true. And listen to me very closely. Not true of humanity in general, true of you. Because at the end of this message, I'm going to ask you on behalf of God, the righteous judge, how you plead. And at that moment, you're going to have a choice. You can plead innocence. You can defend yourself. You can argue your basic goodness. I don't see how these verses apply to me. I've never hated God. Perhaps you will even call into question the justice of God in condemning you. This is, in fact, what most people do. Most people, even in churches, give lip service, as it were, to the fact of sin. It goes something like this. Yes, of course I've sinned. Haven't we all? See what just happened? Yes, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner, but so is everybody else, and surely God can't condemn all of us. Yet in the deep recesses of their hearts, Such people maintain their basic innocence, believing that God would in fact be unjust to consign them to hell and everlasting condemnation. And I wonder if that kind of mindset doesn't describe many of you. I know, I presume, that none of us would deny that we have sinned. But in your heart of hearts, do you really believe that you deserve the wrath of god just ask yourself that question do i actually believe that i deserve god's wrath and curse because that is precisely what you will receive unless you sincerely and in true and deep repentance plead guilty on all charges Acknowledging that your life has been one long story of idolatry, worshiping and serving everything and anything but God, not loving Him supremely as He is due, not treasuring Him above all else. And that your failure to love and trust and honor and obey and enjoy the infinitely trustworthy, glorious, and enjoyable God is deserving of infinite wrath and punishment. Only until your heart can agree with that, then and only then, can you hear and sincerely embrace as good news the word of grace, the word of acquittal, which comes from the lips of the crucified and risen Christ. A robust doctrine of personal sin, acknowledged and felt, is the essential prerequisite to true saving faith. So this morning, I urge you not to give lip service to sin. Take your heart and place it under the charges which Paul is going to bring forth this morning. Lay your soul bare before this text and see if it does not accurately describe your condition. For only then will your eyes be opened to see what happens in verse 21. Namely, the sun of righteousness rising above the bar of God's dreadful judgment with healing in its wings. Malachi 4.2 So listen to the scripture's indictment against you, plead guilty, and then listen as I read the Lord's plea agreement, which is better news than you ever hoped would be offered. Paul's closing argument essentially has three aims. The first is to establish or Better to reaffirm the depravity of every man, both Jew and Gentile. Look at verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So there is no advantage... Of Jew over Gentile, or of Gentile over Jew, when it comes to the nature of sin. For, as Paul has already established in chapter 1, verse 18 to 32, regarding Gentiles, and chapter 2, verses 1 to 29, regarding Jews, that all men, in all places, at all times, and under all circumstances, are under sin. Meaning that they are under the rule or the dominion of sin, a bondage or captivity from which they cannot and will not break free. This is Paul's fundamental charge against humanity. It's the linchpin of Paul's case. Paul says that apart from divine saving grace, you and I are under sin. And the rest of this section is going to describe what that means. John Stott, excellent English theologian and commentator on Scripture, wrote, Paul appears almost to personify sin here as a cruel tyrant who holds the human race imprisoned in guilt and under judgment. Sin is on top of us, weighs us down, and is a crushing burden. Now, I want you to notice that Stott used the word almost. And I suspect that this is because the Scriptures present something of a tension, a paradox of sorts when it comes to our relationship to sin. On the one hand, Paul will speak of our inherited sin nature as a form of slavery, a captivity to evil desires, a bondage which we did not choose and under which we are helpless. For instance, throughout Romans chapter 6, Paul is going to describe man in his natural, graceless, unregenerate state as a slave of sin. The emphasis in such terminology of slavery is on human inability. Man, apart from divine grace, is Powerless against the dominion of sin which rules and reigns over his heart. But this could lead to a misunderstanding, which is why Stott said, almost. Because we don't hold a slave to be responsible for the fact that he's not free. Right? That doesn't seem to us fair. That's why we need the other half of the biblical teaching on our natural relation to sin, which is that we love our bondage. We love the sin that enslaves us. Our slavery to sin is not an unwilling captivity. It is a captivity to which we joyfully assent. We do not sin because we have a whip at our back. Ours is a willing slavery, a slavery consciously and continuously chosen. Our inability, therefore, is a moral inability. It is an inability of our wills to want freedom. Sin is not some external slave driver forcing us to sin against our wills under the threat of punishment. We are not held in bondage with chains. We are held in bondage by false promises of pleasure. The bondage is just as real. All men in their natural state are held captive under sin and are utterly incapable of escaping. Yet at the same time, all men love the sin which holds them captive, and they don't want to escape. It's for this reason that our captivity is culpable, because only sinful people can be slaves of sin. Only wicked people can be captives to wickedness. And in the nine verses which follow, It's going to be offset, kind of indented in your Bible because it's a a host of Old Testament quotations. Paul strings together, which was a common rabbinical practice, these Old Testament quotations in order to define what it means to be under sin and to describe the extent of evil which enslaves our hearts and our minds. So let's walk through these briefly. The first passage is a loose quotation from Psalm 14, 1-3. By the way, do not let it bother you if you see on a footnote, this is from Psalm 14, 1-3, and you turn back to Psalm 14, 1-3, and that's not exactly what it says. In the same way that when I'm preaching, I may paraphrase a passage of Scripture in order to get the point across, so would Paul sometimes when he writes. Okay, So that's why you can't cross-reference and see a one-to-one correlation. And that's what he's doing throughout this section. You could look up all of these references and it won't say exactly that. It will say about that. And you need to give Paul that because we all do the same thing. We paraphrase the Bible that we know. If he had wanted to open up his Old Testament and unroll the scroll to the Psalms and, and get the precise wording, he could have done so. But the precise wording was not as important as the meaning of the text that he is quoting. And that's what he has left for us here. So the first passage that he quotes from is Psalm 14, 1-3. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Then Paul quotes from Psalm five nine: "Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive." Then Psalm one forty and verse three, followed by Psalm ten seven: "The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness." Then to Isaiah 59, 7 and 8. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. And then finally he reaches back to Psalm 36, 1. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now these Old Testament quotations combine to provide a summary of Paul's doctrine of sin. This is what it means when Paul says, All men, everywhere, in all places, at all times, are under sin. These nine verses describe you in your natural, graceless, that is apart from grace, unregenerate state. Three points, I think, emerge about the extent of sin and the doctrine of sin from these verses. First we learn that the extent of sin is total. This is the point of verses 10 through 12. Paul leaves absolutely no room for a single exception to his indictment. Just look how he he loads it one on top of the other. None is righteous. No, not one. Now, I take righteous here to mean essentially the same thing as the obedience of faith, which we've learned about since verse 5 of chapter 1. Or, patience and well-doing and seeking for glory, honor, and immortality, chapter 2 and verse 7. Or, doing the law, chapter 2 and verse 13. Or, keeping the precepts of the law, 2.26. In other words, it is that righteousness which is the goal of the gospel, and according to Paul and the psalmist, not a single person on earth possesses it by nature and apart from grace. What does Paul mean that no one is righteous? He means there's no one who understands. Leon Morris comments that, quote, There is no one who understands, for surely no one would really choose sin if he fully understood what he is doing. By nature, no one understands the infinite beauty and majesty and glory of God and the infinite joy which awaits those who love Him. They don't understand that. They look at God and they don't see glory. They don't see treasure. They don't see the promise of infinite and everlasting joy. They don't understand. And because they don't understand, no one seeks for God. They don't see Him as worth seeking. They don't look for him. They don't want him. There is no unbeliever on the face of the planet who is looking for God. On the contrary, like Adam and Eve in their fallen state, they are doing everything they can to hide from God. Some people hide in outward expressions of gross depravity. Other people hide in all sorts of institutional expressions of religion. Both are hiding nonetheless. They don't want to have anything to do with the holy God. All have turned aside following the path of sin. Together they have become worthless. John Murray wrote, Like salt that has lost its savor, as fruit that is rotten no longer serves any useful purpose, so all men are viewed as having gone bad. To a man they are corrupted. No one does good, not even one. This is the doctrine of total depravity. No one is getting saved apart from divine, sovereign, justifying, and sanctifying grace. Second, the essence of sin is theological. Verses 10 to 12 as well as verse 18 down at the bottom make this point clear. Sin is fundamentally vertical. Sin is defined primarily in relation to God and only secondarily in relation to other people. Again, I'll quote from Stott who expressed this with his usual eloquent, understated British intensity. He said, the essence of sin is ungodliness. God's complaint is that we do not really seek Him at all, making His glory our supreme concern, that we have not set Him before our eyes, that there is no room for Him in our thoughts, that we do not love Him with all our powers. Sin is the revolt of the self against God, the dethronement of God with a view to the enthronement of oneself. Ultimately, sin is self-deification the reckless determination to occupy the throne which belongs to God alone. And he's right. Sin is essentially a rejection of God's wisdom and rule in favor of our own wisdom and self-rule. And that's why it's so damning. What penalty could possibly be due to the man who commits treason against the Almighty and seeks to usurp his throne. What kind of penalty do you think cosmic treason deserves? The only just recompense is death. And yet, verse 18 says, man's unafraid to commit such treachery. Third, the effect of sin is terrible. In verses 13 to 17, Paul describes the devastating effect which our sin has upon ourselves, upon others, and upon the world of which we are a part. And he focuses in particular on two um, types of sin. Sin of speech and sins of violence. And he draws them together to show the miserable and ruinous fruit which each one of them bears. Follow along with me. Their throat is an open grave, meaning that that out of their vocal cords comes all manner of uncleanness and corruption. Robert Haldane said that whatever proceeds out of their mouth is is infected and putrid. As the exhalation from a sepulcher proves the corruption within, so is the corrupt conversation of sinners. He's saying that when sinners open up their throats, it's like removing the stone of, of the, that covers the tomb of someone long dead, you open up the stone and what comes out? Stench, corruption, defilement. That's what happens when unregenerate people talk. Jesus said, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if what comes out of the mouth of man is corrupt and decayed and rotten, Think of vile or crude or malicious talk, then what must be true of that man's heart? It's brimming with such defilement. They use their tongues to deceive. The heart of man is not truthful, it is self seeking and self serving. Consequently, his speech does the same, deceiving whenever it suits his purpose. There's no integrity in his speech because there's no integrity in his heart. He doesn't love the truth. He loves himself, and he only serves the truth insofar as the truth serves his own self-interest. That's why normally honest people will let their honesty go by the wayside when they feel that their position is threatened when they've been caught red-handed in something that they know they ought not have done, then integrity goes out the window, and they will do anything they can to maintain their reputation. The venom of asps is under their lips, meaning that their mouths have the same effect as the bite of a viper. It stings, it kills, it destroys. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, Again, such blasphemies are the overflow of the content of their heart. Now, before we move on, I want you to ask yourself, okay, put your life, put your mouth side by side with Paul's description of the mouth of the natural, graceless, unregenerate man. And I want you to ask yourself, what does the state of my words tell me about the state of my heart? What do my words reveal about my desires? Because it is a principle that offers no exceptions. Out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth speaks. Paul then moves from their speech to their actions, which he says are acts of violence and destruction. Their feet, for instance, are swift to shed blood. They just leave ruin and misery in their wake. They don't even know the way of peace. They don't even know how to be peaceful. And the picture that emerges from these verses is one of, of social anarchy, that's the, the rending of the very fabric of human society, the dismantling of all norms of human decency. It's the picture of animalistic behavior. It's the survival of the fittest, the rule of power. And as we've seen before, namely in chapter 1, 26 and 27, the more man suppresses the knowledge of God and bows before images, the more God gives them over to act just like the images that they make. So rather than being just a little lower than the angels, according to Psalm 8, 5, God has given mankind over to act just a little higher than the beasts, biting and devouring one another. And this animal... Savage, savagery that lurks within the heart of man, it's, it simmers just beneath the surface of society until it's allowed an opportunity to break forth in times of war and times of societal chaos, and it can be observed in the raping and pillaging and murder that goes on when law and order have been set aside and power rules the day. Think of the crimes of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia or the Bosnian genocide of the mid-90s. Think of the African warlords of the last generation, men like Joseph Kony and Idi Amin and Charles Taylor. History is littered with the corpses of those slaughtered in such times of wanton violence. And I want you to ask yourself a question, because I'm not saying that there's humanity and there's Idi Amin. There's humanity and there's Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler. That's not what Paul's saying. Ask yourself, who commits the vast majority of the bloodshed when law and order are suspended and the rule of power wins the day? It's ordinary people who have suddenly found the restraint of law removed that had previously kept at bay their violent and depraved natures. And then when the war ends and order and law are restored, they go back to their villages, they go back to their homes, they go back to their farms, they resume the lives of ordinary citizens, and they don't kill anymore. Do not underestimate the depravity and the violence that lurks within the unregenerate human heart just waiting to be unleashed. Any Time a riot breaks out anywhere on the planet, the looters emerge. From where? From the ordinary mass of mankind. There is a Hitler latent in every son of Adam. Humanity is not divided into men and monsters. Rather, it's divided into those whose depravity is restrained by common grace and those who by providence and circumstance are given free reign to unleash the depravity of their hearts upon the world. Finally, verse 18, Paul summarizes by saying that there is no fear of God before their eyes. He says mankind is godless. Now let your eyes just run from verse 10 down the page to verse 18, and I want you to notice a pattern that emerges. Note how Paul emphasizes the extent of sin, not merely throughout the human race. You see how he moved on from there's none righteous, all have turned aside, together they've become useless, there's no one who does good, not even one. So he says sin has extended itself to touch every person, everywhere, in all places, at all times, And then he dives deeply into the individual, he says, and sin has touched every faculty of every individual human being. His throat, his tongue, his lips, his mouth, his feet, his eyes are all employed in evil and are all given over to sin. So what's the point of verses 10 to 18? Every man is depraved and depravity infects every part of man. That's his first aim. His second aim in Paul's closing argument is to silence every mouth by implicating the whole world, that is, every single person, in the charges that he has just read. According to Cranfield, these words evoke the picture of the defendant in court who, given the opportunity to speak in his own defense, is speechless because the weight of the evidence which has been brought against him. Therefore, the only thing that remains for him is the sentencing of death, verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Now, it may be that Paul has the Jews in particular in his sights in verse 19 when he speaks to those who are under law, those to whom the law speaks, If by law he means the Mosaic law, which is possible, or the whole Old Testament, which is probable. In other words, if those under law mean those who have the word of God written, then Paul most definitely is speaking to Jews because the Gentiles did not have the written word of God. Therefore, the law in that way did not speak to them. But it may also be the case that Paul is speaking of the law in more general terms to include that intuitive sense of the law that is written upon the consciences of every person everywhere by virtue of their creation in the image of God. That law which is spoken of in chapter 2, 14, and 15. This would make sense of the next part of the verse where Paul says that the law's purpose in speaking is to make every mouth silent and the whole world accountable to God. But regardless of who he's talking about, 1st century Jews or 1st century Jews and Gentiles, it's absolutely clear he's speaking about 21st century us. Because we have the law. We are under law. We are those to whom the law speaks. So here's Paul's point in verse 19 so far as we are concerned. None of us should read the Bible and come away feeling justified by his religious works or his self-righteous morality. Paul's saying, so you attend church and read the Bible and pray. Good. So do the Pharisees. So you've honored your father mother, and mother and you've never committed adultery and you've never committed murder and you've never committed theft and you've never borne false witness. Good. So had the rich young ruler. If you read the demands of the law and you come away feeling as if it has patted you on the back and affirmed you in your goodness, then you haven't read the law rightly. If you read the word of God rightly, the effect will be to stop your mouth and to render you accountable to God. Let's take the rich young ruler as a case in point. So here's a young man who comes to Jesus and he asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you hear in there the language of law? Just give me something to do and I'll do it. I'm good at doing stuff. Tell me what to do. I'll do it so that I can be assured of eternal life. And Jesus responds by pointing this young man to the law. He he puts him under law, and he allows the law to speak to him. Why? He wants his mouth shut, and he wants him accountable before God. So Jesus speaks to him the language of the law, the language This man already speaks. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And the young man doesn't bat an eye. All these things I've kept from my youth. In other words, when this young man read the law, it patted him on his back. And it affirmed his own goodness. Why? Because his conception of the law was entirely external. Don't kill? Check. Don't commit adultery? check, don't steal, check, don't lie, at least not in court, check, be a good son, check. Then Jesus takes the devastating step of showing him that the law law is not merely nor even primarily external, it is intensely internal. It begins in the heart, it begins at the level of our affections. It asks primarily, what do you love most? And if the answer in sincerity is not God, it condemns you. This young man's love, trust, and joy was not in God. You lack one thing, Jesus said, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. See, when Jesus exegeted the law rightly for the young man, when he, when he drove it to the heart where it belongs, this man didn't stand a chance. Jesus could just as evil easily have said, Son, the essence of the law is loving God with all your heart and loving people as yourself, and you love neither God nor people. Here, I'll show you. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and trust me. Trust me, to give you infinitely more than what I'm calling you to give up. And the man went away sorrowful. Why? Because he did not love God, he did not love people, and he did not trust Jesus. What effect did the law have on this young man? It stopped his mouth. It placed him under the accountability of the judgment of God. He hadn't kept the law. He hadn't kept the law day in his life. He was a lawbreaker under condemnation, under the sentence of everlasting wrath and ruin. Therefore, there could be for him no justification by works of the law. The only thing the law could say to him was guilty. Which brings us to the final aim of Paul's closing argument, which is the final summation. The law cannot save any man. All it can do is reveal their sin and declare their judgment. Therefore, all human merit is futile. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The purpose of the law is not to redeem sinners, but to reveal sin. It's powerless to do the first. It only has power to do the second. The law is like a ruler. A ruler can tell you how tall or how short you are, as the case may be, but it's powerless to make you one inch taller than you actually are. That's not its purpose. Its purpose is not... To grow you, its purpose is to tell you where you stand. It does not possess the power to make you taller. In the same way, the law can only reveal to you the righteous standard of God and how far short of that righteous standard you fall. It cannot make a righteous or it cannot make an unrighteous person any more righteous than he actually is. The law can only declare a righteous person to be righteous or an unrighteous person to be unrighteous. It cannot declare an unrighteous person to be just. It cannot acquit the guilty. Therefore, there is no justification in the law. Back to the rich young ruler. The command, the law that Jesus gave him. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me which is essentially the same thing as saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The law had no power to alter this young man's affections and cause him to actually love God and love people more than he loved himself and loved money. Only the gospel can create new affections. And you will have treasure in heaven. There's the promise. There's the gospel. There's something that faith can latch hold of. There's something that can change the heart. And I suspect that the gospel did have that effect upon the young man eventually, after and only after the law had had its proper effect of shutting his mouth and convincing him of the futility of his self-made merit and convicting him of his guilt before God. I think, I hope, that at some future point in the Darkness of his room as he laid his head down upon his pillow, he thought about Jesus' words and suddenly it struck him. God offers me treasure in heaven after how I've rejected him and worshiped money and myself instead. What mercy! What grace! When the gospel has had that effect, suddenly money and all of the other idols of our hearts lose their attraction, and we have been born again to a new and living hope of heavenly treasure, namely the treasure that is God himself. There is no hope in works of the law. There is no hope in self-righteousness. There is no hope in merit. It is all futility. All of us were born into this world sinners, depraved through and through. We are all of us under sin. And verses 10 to 18 are not merely descriptive of your Hitlers and Stalins and your Kim Jong-uns of the world. They describe soccer coaches and city council members and Sunday school teachers and you and me apart from the regenerating, justifying, sanctifying grace of God in Christ. Therefore, the law can only condemn us such that we stand silent and guilty before God. So where does... Where does this leave us? Having spent 12 weeks in chapters 1, 18 to 3:20, where does this leave us? It leaves us facing two insurmountable problems. The first is our forensic, that is our legal guilt. We were conceived in sin. We were brought forth in iniquity. We came into this world bearing the guilt of Adam. We were guilty before we emerged from the womb. And we have only compounded that guilt every moment of our lives as we have exalted created things over the glory of the uncreated God. And our debt to the justice of God is therefore infinite and insurmountable. And according to Paul in one eighteen to three twenty, no one can excuse themselves on the basis of ignorance. They knew what they were doing. We all did. We all knew. The second insurmountable problem is our sin nature, which cannot love, trust, honor, worship and enjoy God. We are under sin. We are slaves of sin. We cannot become righteous. And even if we could, even if we were to make a new start, even if we were to turn over a new leaf, it would make no difference so far as the bar of God's judgment is concerned because that's not the way forensic guilt works. You cannot make up for your sins simply by not sinning and doing what you should have been doing to begin with. That's not atonement. What would a judge say to a bank robber whose legal defense goes something like this? Your Honor, it is is true that I have robbed five banks and absconded with $125,000 in cash, but in my defense, I had never robbed any banks before, and I haven't robbed any banks sense. And and besides, I know of a lot of people who are far worse than me. Is that kind of defense going to earn an acquittal from the judge? No, because that's not how the legal system works. That's not how guilt operates. Crimes accrue a debt to justice, and that debt must be paid. Forensic Legal guilt accrues a penalty, and justice, holy divine justice, demands that that penalty be meted out in punishment and wrath. That's why we can't make up for our sins by doing what we should have been doing to begin with. We need an atonement. That's why there's no hope for man in the law, there's no justification by works. But this does not mean that there is no hope. For three chapters, Paul's been setting us up for the glorious words which are coming in verse 21. But now. If Romans 1:18 to 320 has had its proper effect, those two little words ought to be the most glorious words that have ever set upon your ears. But Now, apart from the law in which there is no justification, the law that only silences our mouth and renders us guilty before God, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The answer is, For the wrath of God revealed in the law is the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. And in the coming chapters, we're just going to sit down in the gospel of God's grace and bask in it for a while. This hope for all mankind. But as we will not return to Romans until February, and because I hope and pray that this morning's preaching of the law has had its mouth-silencing, guilt-inducing effect upon your hearts, let me tell you ever so briefly what Paul is going to say. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, God solves for us these two insurmountable problems. He solves the first problem, the problem of our forensic guilt by putting forth Christ as a propitiation, that is a wrath-bearing, penalty-paying sacrifice, a propitiation for our sins. In other words, when Christ died upon the cross, he died in the place bearing the guilt of all who believe. At the cross, Jesus stepped before the bar of divine judgment in our place. He was pronounced guilty in our stead and he suffered the due penalty for our sins. And God poured out upon this substitutionary sacrifice every ounce of his righteous wrath against our sin. He poured it out upon Jesus. And then, through faith, apart from works of the law, not through works, not through self-effort, not through some bootstrap tying obedience, but through faith and in reliance upon Christ alone, God gives to us the perfect righteousness of Christ so that we stand before the bar of God's judgment now, fully acquitted for every sin that we've ever committed and treated as if we had kept the law every moment of our lives. And God will grant to us the blessing which Christ deserved because he gave to Christ the cursing which we had deserved. And we are justified, declared altogether righteous and deserving of life everlasting. But this justification is only for those who believe, who rely not upon the works of the law, but only upon the works of Christ. Paul is going to hammer that home relentlessly in chapters 4 and 5. But the gospel not only brings justification and acquittal and the removal of our forensic legal guilt, it comes with regenerating, sanctifying power to transform our sin nature and to produce within us real righteousness as we walk not according to the flesh but according to faith in the power of the Spirit. In other words, it is not a dead faith which justifies. It is a living faith, a faith which comes with power power for righteousness thus in the gospel of jesus christ god has solved the second insurmountable problem which is the problem of our sin nature and paul's going to hammer that home in chapters 6 through 8 this is why the gospel is the hope of all mankind and the only hope so i'd ask you as we close the book on romans for about six weeks heading to the Christmas season, do you have that hope? Do you have the confidence that when you stand before the bar of God's divine judgment, you will hear a better word than guilty? When you stand before the bar of God's judgment, will you hear the word justified? If not, then I pray this morning that you will transfer your hope I talk with my hands, which means I also pray with my hands. And it is very often that I will, with my hands, take all of my guilt and transfer it to Christ by faith and take the the robe of his righteousness, which he offers to me, and take it and wrap it around myself. And then, I will go to God in prayer. That's what you need to do. You need to transfer your reliance from the works of the law. Namely, have I been good enough? Have I read the Bible enough? Have I felt sorry enough? Have I done enough good things? And you need to do what Paul did, which was, and with your empty hands, you need to grasp hold of Christ his blood, his righteousness, his atoning death, his perfect obedience, and just wrap up with that and then go to God and say, here, this is all I have. This morning, if you will plead guilty to all charges, admitting that you are unrighteous to the core and that your unrighteousness is damning, that, there, that is, that it deserves the wrath and punishment of God, then God will offer you His plea deal. He will take away your guilt, He will give you Christ's righteousness, and He will fill you with His Spirit who will begin to transform you from the inside out. So this morning I ask you, how do you plead?